As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Well, Harm, just when we knew what we were going to get from this team, the vaunted tank schedule came. We knew that when they played Philadelphia, it could be a problem. It was a problem. And the Canucks turned in a pretty good effort winning this game. And before we get into the game, let's talk about the performance of Elias Pettersson specifically because another five-point night, his fifth. Um, this guy has been the man for this team. As, as good as Bo Horvat was, before he got traded in terms of a complete game and being able to do all things at all times for all people, Elias Pettersson is proving to be the player we thought he would be coming out of his rookie season. Absolutely. What a turnaround compared to where he was at the midway point of last season. We're we're standing here right now, February 20th, Monday. He leads all NHL forwards with 43 5-5 points through 54 games. That's three more than anybody anybody else, right? You're talking about Jack Hughes is at 45 and 5 points. Connor McDavid is at 45 and 5 points. Robert Jason Robertson and Kachuk are also at 40. But none of them can catch Elias Pettersson right now. That's such an incredible sort of step for him to be able to take because there there is such a difference between being someone who can dominate at uh, at 5 on 5 and just someone who piles up the points on the power play, to me, to be a truly elite franchise caliber player, you need to be able to take a game over at even strength because in the playoffs or deep into the regular season, you may not always be able to sort of get the calls that you need. And five and five production just tends to be a little bit more sustainable, a little bit more repeatable. I think it's also just around the league valued a little bit more as well. So for him to be in a position where he's the cream of the crop among all NHL forwards there at 5-on-5 five five this season. It's it's incredible. And honestly, if the Canucks 
weren't going through this nightmare season. It's actually a shame because Pedersen's monster campaign would be way more of a national talking point, right? There's been a million other things going on with this team, with this market, the Horvat trade, all the Boudreaux stuff, Tockett coming in, even on the first road trip, them blowing all those leads, going 0-5, the getting boot off the ice and having the jersey thrown in the home opener in October against Buffalo, that it's overshadowed at a national level, Pedersen's, um, Pedersen's unreal step. And, and frankly, if, if we were dealing in an alternate universe where Pedersen's performance was the exact same and yet the team was like hanging on the fringes of, of, of the bubble sort of uh, race. Now, Pedersen might not be able to catch uh, someone like Connor McDavid because he's totally in a different uh, stratosphere in terms of his point production right now. But there'd at least be talk about him as a dark horse heart trophy candidate, the way that he's been able to drag this team. But alas, this team's way too far uh, far out of it for for them to be competitive for that uh, that movement to really pick up some steam. But it's also weird, not weird, but it's also really interesting how there was going into training camp. Once you first saw him there, once you saw him in Whistler, once you saw him in preseason. There was such a palpable feeling, a feeling of inevitability that this was going to be his year. Just a, there was a different level of focus. You could see confidence in his body language and demeanor. You could sense a different level of maturity. And even as a player, you can see that he's now understood, for example, little things like, oh, well, there are many different ways to set the tone for him in a game where it's not just scoring, but it can be a hit. It can be a great defensive play. Uh, or it can be creating a, a shorthanded uh, chance. And, and even when it comes to his lifestyle, delis- de- lifestyle decisions this season, I believe he aligned everything on and off the ice toward dominating this season. And I think a big part of that comes from how hard he is on himself in terms of his own expectations. Because I remember I had a conversation with uh, his, uh, his trainer uh, over in Sweden, Robert uh, Ligback. A while, uh, a while ago, and, and he sort of mentioned that, for example, after Pedersen's rookie season, where he'd come over and he had crushed all expectations, right? Like a lot of people thought, okay, is he going to start at the wing? Ends up playing at center, unre- unreal rookie season, wins the Calder. What Robert told me was that Pedersen came back that offseason and they were sort of working in terms of, okay, like what do you want to do, do for next season? And Robert tells me that Pedersen was just so insistent and, and sort of pissed off about how he slowed down in the second half of the season. And so much of their training was just based off of, I need to be more durable. I don't want to slow down in the second half of the season. Like it genuinely bothered him to such an extent, despite how strong the overall season was. And so they had like crafted this whole training regiment based off of uh, based off of that premise. And they were, and they were working on core work and everything was designed on, okay, how, how do I have a, have a more complete, consistent 82-game uh, season? And we saw that in a sophomore campaign. So that just gives you a little bit of insight into the way Pedersen is driven. And, and you can bet that once he started slow last season and the year before, that he would have felt so much, um, so much pressure on himself that I've got to be the man from day one. And that's exactly what he's been. Yeah, absolutely. And I echo all of that. And again, well, let's go back to what you talked about a year ago at this time, right? I mean, people looked at Pedersen and his underperformance as 
big a reason as anything for why Travis Green got fired, right? Like the way the team was playing, you know, you you had to look at Pedersen and, and I'm not blaming him, right? It's not, it's not like that. I'm not saying he did or didn't buy in or anything like that. I'm just saying that they needed him to play at a certain level and he wasn't doing that. And when you talk about internal pressure and maturity, think about what the storylines were around Pedersen at this time a year ago, because he had just signed the deal, right? The three-year extension and there were concerns about his maturity and there were concerns about, you know, a focus on social media and things like this. And, um, and yes, he was having the tail end of the wrist injury as well, but that internal pressure and the accountability, because I was harshly critical of Pedersen in this space at this time a year ago. And I had a bunch of people keeping receipts, which is all great, but understand at no point in time that I think they should ever give up on the player or even consider trading him. Right. But the best part about it is the one person that held Elias Pedersen accountable was Pedersen. So everybody was giving him a free pass. I didn't. Okay. Because I didn't like the way he wasn't thinking the game. Right. Because there was such a dynamic aspect to how he thought the game and the confidence with which he played with. And you couldn't take all of those things and say, well, it's because his wrist is hurting. Right. Like you could say the wrist was affecting his shot, but he just wasn't playing the game the same way. Right. So you couldn't narrow it down to that. And everybody, when he turned it around, said, Oh, it was just because of the wrist. He told you, but he wasn't buying that. He didn't give himself that out. So you could, you can be annoyed at me because I didn't give him the out, but he didn't give him the out. And that was the best part of it all. And when you look at Pedersen, he does so many things well. Kuzma had a pretty good article about being a five-tool player. But remember in his rookie season when we we put him in a conversation with Wayne Gretzky and nobody ever thought he was going to be as good as Wayne Gretzky or, you know, challenge Wayne Gretzky's record or anything stupid like that. But there was kind of a thought from people who saw this player on a daily basis like we did. And we we thought that this guy's thinking the game differently than everybody else, which is what Gretzky did. And that was the only parallel because it's not McDavid who just blows you away with his speed, right? It's not what we're going to see from Connor Bedard who's going to blow you away with his shot. It's a multi-layered game with a thought process that's different than most players. And when he got to a, a point where he knew the game and knew his body and knew everything about it. You know, and now we're in year four. When he got to this point, we thought that that thought process could take over. At least that's how I felt about it. Right. And, you know, I know people around the league were laughing that we could put those two names in the same sentence, but understand nobody thought we, that he would be that guy. We just thought he thought the game differently, which was, which was unique like 99 did. So, and remember also, he clearly wore down the first year to your earlier point. And, when we asked him about it at the end of the season, he was having none of it, right? We talked about the difficulty of playing in the National Hockey League. He was a toothpick and how he needed to get stronger, you know, much like Harm has done in the last four years, right? Like he's now jacked, um, you know, we, we, and he dismissed it, right? Like, you know, he just like, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not accepting that. But what did you just tell me? That's exactly what he went home to do. Right. That he wasn't going to give in to us that it was hard and, you know, that the physicality of it and all of that had an, had an effect. He wasn't going to give in to us and admit that and give himself an out. But he went home and worked on exactly those things. 
to let himself endure an 82 game season and get stronger in the areas he physically needed to improve in to do that. Right. So now we're seeing a player that is, this is going to be him and the Canucks can't lose him. You know, and I, I can't help but watch him play right now and wonder the organization is extremely confident, right? Um, you know, others at various times when the team was really, really bad, you know, I've said, oh, he's gone. And again, like, this is not me reporting. So, uh, you know, don't sit here and say, you know, some of the nonsense that Canuck Twitter had on my Demco conversation, because I never said Demco demanded a trade. So no one sit here and take from this that, oh, Lalji's reporting he's gone because I'm not, right? I'm just saying there's been talk on both sides of it that, you know, why would he want to be around, an, you know, an organization that's struggling this bad? But then certainly the organization feels very confident that they've been in constant communication with his camp and they're going to get a, get get this done and and I have no uh, knowledge of it in either direction because I don't think it's played itself out yet but uh, watching this player play he is the one untouchable they have got to get this done whatever it takes they have got to get this done for sure I'm reasonably confident that it will get done and I mean that's a conversation I think for for later down down the road anyway but i like what you mentioned in terms of his differentiating attribute being his elite hockey iq because even you go back to that philly performance that secondary assist on kuzmenko's goal i think spoke volumes was was the quintessential on the, example on the pass to shen that was incredible yeah. you, you could tell that he knew where kuzmenko was going to be in that moment well it was it was crazy because Pedersen had kind of picked up the puck he was on the left side of the offensive zone. Kuzmenko is beaver tapping. Like he's slamming his stick on the ice. He's got no defender around him. And 90 to 95% of NHL players in that spot that Pedersen was in would have immediately given it to Kuzmenko so that Kuzmenko could then drive the net for a scoring chance. But no, this is where Pedersen has that innate special ability to think two steps ahead of everybody else or he's thinking, okay, yeah, I could feed it down low to Kuzmenko right now and he has has time and space to generate a chance. Or what I could do is go east-west to Shen and then it, from from Shen's position, if he can connect with Kuzmenko, it's a tap-in. Like it's an yeah. 80 to 90, 90% chance of an actual goal being scored. So that's where it's like Patterson's playing chess and everybody else is playing checkers. Totally. It's, so special to watch yeah and the other thing too is i think it highlights how i think a couple of games ago when talkit was sort of ha- had revealed his his lines and was initially going to give pod colson a shot with Pedersen, he spoke about wanting that line to play the Pedersen one to play north south and sort of you know how why he liked pod colson in that role because of that well that i think sequence with the with the pass to Shen and then Kuzmenko eventually scoring, I think you see the value when Kuzmenko's on that line that they don't necessarily have to play a north south game. They can be just as effective east west. Now I get what Talk is saying in that yes, there are some instances where they can force where where that line can force east west a little bit too much, but that's like that's what makes them sort of break defenses. It, like you watch how. Other teams break the Canucks' defense wide open. It's east-west. It's those passes across the slot. It's not necessarily just north-south. So, yeah, Pedersen 
yeah, he can he can be really effective in a north south sort of style. We saw it all those, all those years ago with the lotto line, where that line was playing a pretty direct sort of forechecking style, um, playing off the cycle, and there wasn't a ton of east west there. But I think Pedersen's the sort of player who I don't think you want to put him in a box in terms of you only want him to play one type of way because we've seen with when he plays with Kuzmenko, Kuzmenko is definitely an east west player, and we saw against Philly how they're still able to manage that chemistry. And I think if they just make a, a little bit of tweaks maybe to adjusting the to talk its style and maybe being a little bit more careful where they where they try and force plays, that I I truly believe they could be that line with Patterson could be successful playing that East West style. And uh we we absolutely saw it uh work like magic against the Flyers. Yeah, we did. And you know and the the thing with Patterson is remember when he turned his game around last year, it came on the power play. And now, while he's keying the power play, like he went how long without scoring a power play goal, but still had a, had an amazing impact on the game and certainly five on five. And you see him even more now with Bo Horvat now gone and some different looks being thrown in by the new coaching staff uh, where he's at the top a little bit more. And, and, you know, it, it's not running through, you know, a couple of years ago when it was Quinn Hughes walking the line and doing all of this, like it looks so, so different, but let's talk a bit about the power play and transition here to how different it looks now and how it really hasn't missed a beat without Bo Horvat in a traditional look with him at the bumper and how it went from low to high or from the wall into him. We saw that for years going back to the bubble. Now it looks different, but it hasn't really missed a beat. Absolutely. Credit to the coaching staff, credit to Jason King, because I've been really impressed at the adjustments that they've made, how they've sort of organized the power play and introduced a dynamic element. Because since Horvat has left in the seven games, the Canucks' power play ranks fifth in terms of their goals for it, which I don't, I certainly wasn't expecting uh, that to happen, especially like I figured they, that they had enough weapons with Pedersen, with Hughes, with Miller, with one of Kuzmenko or Besser to where they had a strong enough core to still be effective on the power play. But I figured that there might be a learning curve in trying to come up with new plays. And this is where the the biggest strength of Vancouver's power play right now is just how unpredictable it is, right? Like you don't know what player is going to be in what spot on the power play. Where, for example, you see it with, like you mentioned with Pedersen, there was that adjustment where with the one timer he wasn't able to get the shoot get the shooting lane from the right circle so they went so they went okay let's give him some looks from up top and we saw it again with that uh slap with that missile slap shot that went off Pavilier's stick and beat Carter Hart where they intelligently put him in a spot where he's more likely to be able to get his shot through but how JT much Miller, let, me ask you, him- let me ask you this and look they know what they've got in a player but you yeah. there were so many times earlier on where he would get looks and he wouldn't shoot. And now all of a sudden he comes back after having won the, sh- the hardest shot competition at the all-star game. And he is firing from everywhere. How much do you think that impacted it just in terms of now I'm known as a shooter and not just necessarily a spot shooter from the circle, but I can shoot from anywhere and make this go. Yeah, that's a good point because I have noticed that he's, been trying to rip it every chance he can get, which yeah. is great. It's, but since the All-Star game, am I am I wrong in that? No, no, you're not. And I don't know if it necessarily has to do with winning that competition or whether it's more just, okay, we've lost Bo, so I've kind of got, got to be the man. I've got to be the primary shooting weapon because Bo previously 
was uh, was that guy. Um, but yeah, you're right. He has been a lot more direct about wanting to impact the game in that way. And we've even seen with, for example, JT Miller, he's been, we've seen him everywhere. We've seen him net front. We've seen him on the left flank. We saw him score the, the one, uh, one, one timer goal he had from the right circle where Pedersen normally is. We've seen Hughes all over the ice. We've seen Kuzmenko and Besser sort of substitute in. The only constant has been Beauvillier in the bumper. And he's obviously been pretty successful here. In terms of his uh, his goal scoring and, and how he's how he's adjusted to the top unit, but yeah, I mean that's the biggest thing that stands out to me is because when I'm a penalty kill and I'm trying to pre scout Vancouver's power play right now, it's hard for me to know what they're going to do. It's not like the, the power play is trying to spam one look, one or two one or two plays where you're like, this is what they're going to do. This is how you stop it. With this Canucks power play right now, anyway. It's like, I don't know what they're going to try to do. I don't know what players are going to be in what spot. I don't know what shooting threats that they're going to be primarily trying to use. And so because of that, it's like, that's why it's so difficult to stop right now. Yeah, it's a lot more fun to watch, you know, when as opposed to when we know exactly what the the process is going to look like, right? I mean, I, I know I'm getting old now, but I, I think back to a decade ago when uh, San Jose had their looks on offense when Thornton was there and Marlowe was there and Dan Boyle at the point and, and, and Pavelski, they just used to move around everywhere. You had no idea who's going to line up where at any given time or end up where at any given time. And it made it so much more difficult to defend. And, and I like seeing it that way because uh, predictability is not good. Um, you, you know, as much success as Bo had in that spot or as much success as they had coming in off the half wall, Event, there were there were stretches in key games where teams just decided we are just taking that part of it away and take their chances. Whereas now that becomes much more difficult to do. Uh, a lot more to get into on this episode of the Vancast, including where the Canucks are at, are at goaltending wise with Demko. Uh, maybe took a minor step back, but now it looks like he's going to be on the trip and should play soon here. So we'll get into that and much more. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Before we get into the rest of the show, I should let everybody know that my appearance on the VanCast has been brought to you by my good friends at Key West Ford in Newest Minster. Just got one of their mockies. It is fantastic. But look, let's talk about the Canucks goaltending right now. Archer Silovs looked pretty good in his second appearance. And I know the Flyers aren't, you know, th- th- this isn't the Edmonton Oilers. This isn't a-, a team that's got that many dynamic offensive players. They're struggling. They're in the bottom end of things, just like the Canucks are. But it was, number one, for me, it was great that the organization decided to throw him back out there for a second straight opportunity, uh, given what Demko's going through, which we'll get to in a moment. But how much better did, A, he look to you, and how much better did they look in front of him? 
both, right? Like the Canucks allowed a lot of shots, but they were so much better defending the middle of the ice. They didn't have nearly as many breakdowns uh, that they, compared to the Rangers game. What impressed me about Seelofs too was it said a lot to me about the way that he's wired mentally, where he can have where he where he had a rough outing against Rangers, not necessarily on his own accord, but still you get lit up for six goals in your NHL debut that can have an impact on your confidence. But for him to be able to bounce back, show zero nerves, and even after that, the first goal that he allowed was pretty soft, right? Yeah. It was kind of the Justin Braun point shot. Braun hasn't scored all season, and he even collected the puck. I think because he he assumed that it might be his last goal before he um, before he retires, maybe at the end of the season. But that's a sort of spot, right? Where had a rough outing against the Rangers, allowed a soft first goal. It would have been really easy for a twenty-one-year-old goaltender who's just tasting his first NHL success to crumble in confidence. But we didn't see that. We we saw him play nearly impeccable from that point on, especially late in the second. The biggest save that he made of the night was Travis Konechny shorthanded right after the Flyers had made it 4-2. And if they had scored that, it would have been 4-3 going into the third. And then you have no idea how it goes. So he'd stopped that. He stopped tipping on a breakaway. There were a couple other moments late in the third period where he was able to track the puck well in, uh, in scramble situations, make a couple of rebound stops. I was impressed, and and after the game, to see him in the locker room talk about his experience, he's just so level headed. Like honestly, yeah. it's like it's like none of this feels like it's it's a bit it, it's it's big stakes for him. Uh, he's just kind of able to to shrug everything off, and um and and he seems really laid back. The other thing that he said too was, and this is I think credit to credit to the organization as well for having the confidence to go to him again. He said that just the just the simple fact that he got the tap on the shoulder to play again, like that in and of itself gave him confidence uh, that, okay, the organization's believing in me. They're giving me another shot. And so that decision just by itself was, was I think, uh, essential. And, and he responded in, in a great way. I mean, for him to put up that kind of performance at 21 years old is, is really impressive in terms of his uh, future potential. Even though, yeah, the the Flyers are uh, are pretty inept offensively, you know, a, as a whole, it still means something to me in terms of what he could be down the road. Yeah, and, and I agree with you. I think his approach to it all from the time he got the call from Ryan Johnson, and he's like, "Yeah, okay, sounds good." Right? There was no lose my mind moment, and uh, you know, I, I guess it would have been hard to get his family here this quickly, but they didn't. You know, he, he they're back there, and he you know talks about. Um, Talks about a level of happiness and pride and accomplishment, but you can tell, and I don't think this is just language barrier uh, because he speaks pretty well. Like he's just good with it. This is kind of what he expected. He's not going to get, you know, too excited in one direction or another. You know, if they, like I fully assume, expect that he, you know, he's not going to be in the discussion to be Thatcher Demko's backup next year. 21 years of age, they're going to want him to spend more time in the minors, continue to work on his game, get more ice time, get more game time. And, you know, his time will come. Um, and I think when that happens, he's going to be good with it, right? Like throughout this process, you, when you listen to him and you, it's not even just what comes out of his mouth, it's just his body language. You just, you, he just seems like uh, a pretty cool customer and a guy that's going to be just fine with however the organization wants to deal with him and what situation he's thrown into, right? So, and again, good for them that they, 
they didn't just pull him out and go back to Curtis Martin or uh, they, they gave some time and um, gave him another look. And they probably knew that this was going to be a favorable situation. Unlike the last one against an elite team, like the Rangers, they knew that this was going to be a little bit easier for him and took that a, as an opportunity to do it. And let, let's talk about um, Demko and certainly everyone kind of had a, an audible gasp when he left practice early. And I know Earth uh, among others reported that, um, he may have suffered a setback, and uh, now it seems like if there was a setback, that it it could be minor um, from the groin injury, and they are taking him on the trip, and they do expect him to be ready to participate, even if that just means dressing as the backup fairly soon. You know, I, I certainly, when, when he first stepped off the ice and the reports came out there, the thought was, shut him down for the entire season. Now what? Yeah, it's it's tough to know without um, without having the specifics of where where exactly he's at because sometimes there's uh there you know you tweak something here and the next day you feel a lot better and then it's just about cautiously managing it and you, you get to the point where the guy feels 100 again so what are you going to do you're going to ask him to sit out you know six weeks when he may be ready to go i think from the connexus perspective we all agree that They've just got to take the most cautious approach possible. If that means that you're looking at a scenario where it may be most sensible to shut him down, absolutely go down that path. We kind of have to be flexible with it in terms of evaluating where he's at. There's no need to sort of force him to sort of for, force him into action um, before he's ready. There's no need to showcase him or or anything. You have to just do whatever's in um, in his best interests long term, and you've got to ensure that. Sometimes there's a difference between when a player is 100% ready to play. Like a guy can be 90 to 95%, even 100% ready to, to sort of return. And the the difference can sometimes be that, okay, if he, if he plays these games and he's healthy enough to play them, well, is there a higher risk when he's initially returning of tweaking it again and, and getting hurt, um, hurt, um, Early on, I mean, I think back to the classic uh, Bulls example when uh, in the last dance in the last uh, dance documentary when uh, when Jordan wanted to come back from uh, some lower body injury he had and, and he was actually healthy enough to sort of play, but the Bulls were kind of just like wanted to play play it so cautiously because they're like, yeah, you could be healthy enough to actually play, but the risk of you re-injuring yourself is higher as opposed to if you just take some rest, right? So I think that's what the Canucks are going to have to be uh, cautious of is it's not just about getting back to 100% health now. It's about ensuring that when he does return that the risk of re-injuring yourself is as low as as possible. And, and that's something that, look, I'm not a medical professional. You're not a medical professional. Canucks Twitter, we're not medical professionals, most of us. Uh, that's something that the organization is going to have to be cognizant of and ensure that they make the best decision because for this organization's long-term interests, they need Thatcher Demko uh, to be healthy, to be confident, to get to a point where he can play as comfortable and as 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 confident as possible. Yeah, and with this type of an injury, a lot of it is is psychological. And many believe that the first injury was the result of compensating in his technique for the procedure he went through in the summer, right? And compensatory injuries are, are a common thing in sport. So if that was part of the thought process that got us to this point, you know that it's going to take Demko a little bit mentally longer 
to to be that level of comfort. And it might not t- it might not happen until the off season. But if the trade thing is still out there, and I don't know that it is, but if it is still out there, you know, you wonder if that is part of the thought process. Obviously, they're not going to put the player at risk. But if they believe medically that he's good to go and that's still a, a possibility, you know, does does that mean they get him out there a bit sooner? Because for me, certainly when the first report came out that he suffered a setback, the trade thing was gone, right? Like there was going to be – like who was going to take a player in that situation? For him to to still be available, he's going to have to play a few games here before March 3rd, so we don't know if we're going to get to that point. Certainly the latest reports would suggest he'll be available to play a few games before March 3rd, but I, I don't think they're going to – risk him for that purpose either way it shouldn't be a factor at all even if it's even if it's like forget the deadline even if it's for this idea that you need to you know get him into some games and and prove to other teams where exactly he's at i don't think that should be a consideration at all because this is a player that has term left on his on his contract there's mm-hmm. no rush yeah to uh to do anything with him and, and the other side of it too is the canucks aren't it's not as if they're aggressively shopping him. It's this is more more of a case where they're just listening. The they're listening, yeah, and they're, they're, yeah, they're, they're listening, listening, and they're not right? saying they're not no yet. Actively trying to get rid of it, like right. Like this isn't a case where you're actively trying to get rid of him. This isn't a case where you need to uh, juice his value the way that you're looking at with some of uh, some of your other wingers, right? This is this is still your your number yeah. one uh, goaltender. So you've got time for this to play out. He's probably still part of part of the solution long term and. Um, even if he's not, that's a decision that you can make down the road. Like your first, first and foremost goal needs to be his health needs to be to get him back to a point where you're confident in him as uh, as an impact difference maker, just because, yeah, there is sometimes a risk where you see with goalies where you see them run through injuries and especially with the volatility, volatility of the position, you don't want them to get to the point where they're not quite the same player that they once used to be. And so I think that'll dictate and, and rule above all is his health um, more than trying to get him necessarily back in as, as, as soon as possible, just to get him some games. Uh, and before we leave the Philadelphia game, let's, let's uh, talk about the damage that has done to the team tank. I mean, look, it was two points, but every point, And for me, I don't think the Canucks can get into that bottom three, but they could certainly stay in the next three. Um, you know, and, and Philadelphia is part of that discussion as well. So, and, and these games are coming, you know, when we talk about tanking, we know the difficulties of it for two reasons. One, they got a soft schedule relatively down the stretch. They play a number of teams in that bottom tier and you know, they're going to win their share. Uh, and the, the other thing was the, the possibility of Demko coming back and just making them that much better uh, because of his ability, if he can get back to that point. So, you know, if you're on Team Tank, are you disappointed, or was this just expected? In terms of the loss against Philly, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. We're calling it a loss, even though it was a win. Yes, you're on. Oh, board. sorry. <laughs> Whoops, <laughs> I meant the win against Philly. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Look, it's it's a little bit disappointing, but look, they weren't going to lose every single game, and no. I think the way that they won it, you can live with it, right? Like Seelovs gets his first career win. Pedersen has a five point night. That's the occasional one where you're like. Okay, I don't like this, but you can live with it, right? You can have a little bit of fun. That's that's okay. And Phillies, this wasn't this wasn't um, you know this isn't like uh, the games that they may they may have down the stretch against a team like San Jose, where it's like those two teams are right up against each other. Even with that uh, loss the Canucks had, Philly is still six points up on 
Vancouver, which overall I know it's a bit of an aside, but is kind of crazy for me to to think about is I was, you know, just to see Philly in that game, to think that they're somehow ahead of the Canucks overall is, is mind blowing. Imagine telling someone before the season because Outside of Travis Konechny, they have nobody, zero difference makers among their forwards and defensemen. They have Carter Hart and goal who's been pretty solid, but the difference between Konechny and their second best skater is legitimately mind boggling. So I just, I just thought, I just thought that was really um, uh, interesting as well, especially for a club that's been without Sean Couturier, that's been without Cam Atkinson, that's been without Ryan Ellis is thank goodness the Canucks still have this six-point cushion. Thank you, John, thank you, John Torella, for willing these guys to 54 points so far because down the stretch of the way, that's a that's a team I look look at in Philly where they've lost three straight. They're two, five, and three in their last 10. Um, thank goodness they've banked a lot of early points relative to the Canucks because I could really see them falling from now uh, till the end of the season. Torch was great. I, I guess you called all the, the local media idiots. I wasn't there for that. But and it, it's funny because um, like I've got a good relationship with Torch, and people remember the end of season press conference where I accidentally called him Mike, right? And obviously I, I knew who John Tortorella's <laughs> name was. Um, and you know, with with Gillis going, and so he called me an, an asshole, right? Which was we got a lot of laughs, and it's still a clip that's out there, and it's, it's been funny. But what people don't realize is about 30 minutes after that exchange and, you know, most of the media had cleared out, he came back down the hallway and he poked his head inside the media room, which no longer exists. And, you know, we had a laugh about it, right? He's like, you didn't take that serious. I said, no, 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 it was, it was funny. Right. And, you know, we, we all kind of, there was myself and I think IMAC and maybe one other person was there and we all kind of knew that this was probably the end. Right. Um, so we were just kind of sitting there for about 20 minutes or so and just kind of kibitzing. And, you know, the media collectively was quite nervous about John Tortorella getting the Canucks head coaching job. And we're all sitting here thinking, are you kidding me? Of all the people. And he was actually pretty good in his one year here in terms of how we dealt with him. And there was a lot of turmoil because it wasn't just the hallway incident with the Calgary Flames. There was also... The, the Heritage Classic, right? When he chose to start Eddie Lack and not um, uh, Roberto Luongo. And he got grilled that day at BC Place repeatedly, right? And it was certainly not the right decision, um, you know, given the stature of the player and what the game meant and all of those things. But, you know, he stood in there, he took the arrows and we, you know, we talked about that after and it was a pretty good conversation because we told him that, you know, we were all pretty nervous when you got hired and you've actually been pretty great to, to work with. And so I, I do think that there was a portion of his conversation this weekend that was kind of joking tongue in cheek. But uh, I, like the, the year we had Torts, he was just fine. He was just fine. The other thing about Torts is you were like, know, were you 12 then? I was yeah, not far off. Probably thirteen or fourteen. Wow, legitimately. What season was that? Twenty fourteen. Fourteen. Yeah, I, yeah. So I was, leg- I was actually like legitimately fourteen. Fourteen, fifteen, uh-huh. right? Like, yeah, yes. Um, that that's funny. But no, the the thing I want to say about Torts was, I know he catches a lot of grief for you know after a brutal loss, he'll have those viral post game clips where he's like not answering any questions. I I can see the method behind the madness there. Where yeah, it's. You know he's he's being a, a bit of a dick in that in that sort of scenario, but it's 
he's just he's trying to protect his team. He's he's trying to take the bullets and be the the center of the conversation as opposed to his underperforming team. Well, see, so, yeah, but sometimes there really aren't that many bullets, and he just creates them because he's you know, especially in New York, right when he had the whole thing with Larry Brooks. Um, that's different. Yeah, you're right. Right, and and they actually also had a a respect for one another despite all of those moments. Right. It's funny because I talked to the guys when he used to work for us at TSN and, and Torch and I talked, we, we talked about this, that every once in a while, Duffy would throw him a question that was awkward. Right. And for him, and he just kind of said something silly and dismissed it. And Duffy as only he can do brushed it off and made it a funny moment instead of an awkward moment, because you know what Torch liked? He liked sitting in the green room when pizza had been delivered pregame and just talking hockey and kibitzing with the guys and telling stories. Once you got him on the set and there were structures and, you know, here's the quiz and it's a clever little question and he didn't like any of that stuff, right? He just liked talking hockey and, and being that guy, right? So, uh, you know, there are a lot of sides to the man and, and I enjoyed the year we had with him. So uh, even if he thought we were idiots and even if he called me an asshole, which which – as he said to me afterwards, you know, it was all a good fun, but um, he, he's a good guy and it's always fun whenever he comes around. Uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back, as we touched on possible trade discussions, JT Miller's name was out there. Uh, Elliot Friedman, 32 Thoughts, and, and I know the Canucks Army put an article together on it, but it's out there. Let's uh, get into that in a bit more when the VanCast returns. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. So again, sticking on Philly, while I never thought we would talk this much about a game that really didn't matter, although it does matter because if you're on team tank, you, you know, you lost to a team competing with you. Christian Wolanin, I said this after the game and I've felt this all season long as the Canucks went through different issues on their back end and how they were going to manage it. Christian Wolanin was good enough to make this team out of training camp, period, full stop. Based on what he did in the preseason relative to everybody else, and let's be honest, there's a lot of bottom-pairing defensemen on this team. On merit, he was one of their best six defensemen coming through the preseason. He didn't make the team, and his name completely disappeared from the discussion as they were looking for options. And again, he's not going to make them a playoff team or anything silly like that, but he did enough He's backed it up in the American Hockey League as the highest scoring defenseman. And we all know there is a big difference between playing in the AHL and playing in the NHL. And we also know that it was just Philadelphia. But for me, he looked pretty good. And I'd like to see him stay. And I think he's deserved it. I'd take him over Riley Stillman any day. Yeah, sure. I think he has a level of poise with uh, with the puck that um, that not many defenders on this team have. I think the foot speed is definitely a bit of a concern, a bit of a drawback, but when you can do what he does with the puck, it, it definitely, considering the state of the rest of the blue line, warrants a, a closer look. At the end of the day, though, I, I honestly, like, he maxes out at, what, a 6'7 defender? So, I, you know, I'm not, um, I haven't been getting too, you know, I, I haven't been 
too excited to sort of see him play or anything like that. In fact, Dude, any- this market spends a lot of time talking about who the 12th forward is going to be. Um, so, so you're, you're not wrong, right? Like it hasn't been an egregious miss. All I'm saying is that, you know, we've gone through names for quite some time around this team and we all of a sudden stopped talking about a guy that looked pretty good early on. I'm just surprised he hasn't even been in the discussion for this long. Maybe. Sure. I think, I, I think his history just isn't like, he's always been an NHL, HL tweener. So that's kind of been like, nobody looks at him as, as like the team's issues are far more than can we bring in a six, seven and stabilize things, right? Even though you're right that he, you know, has probably deserved a shot. And, and I am curious to see how he fares uh, moving forward, see if he could be, you know, part of the solution or anything. But I think people just have this understanding that he's just another guy, even if he's a marginal upgrade on, on somebody else. That's fair. But which, like, understand that, you know, if he's, he's been a six, seven guy and he's generally been on better blue lines, this is a horrific blue line. But he um, hasn't though, right? Like he hasn't he been mostly on like I think it was on Ottawa for a while, LA when they were rebuilding and kind of sucked. Um now you could be right, yeah, that he maybe hasn't been on as many like I'm looking at those teams now versus what they were when uh when he was on them. But anyway, look, you're you're right. We 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 don't need to spend a ton of time on him. It hasn't been an egregious miss. It's just been odd to me that it hasn't even been part of the discussion as a band-aid solution at various times when they've been dealing with issues. Um we wanted to get into trades, so let's talk about Luke Shen a little bit. And uh, Shen and Willan were both really good in the last game. And Shen, uh, with a three-point night, what do they do with him? And two things on the Luke Shen front. Number one, are we overvaluing him as a market, which we've done for players before, most notably a guy like Eddie Lack? What's the market for Luke Shen? Um, Can this team get a second for him? So there's been some discussion about the Canucks needing to protect him and maybe not playing him as much right now. Uh, or maybe not playing him at all, so you can save him because I think there is a belief that they are trying to move him if the right offer comes. And I know I've I've read elsewhere that if if they could have gotten a second or a third for him already, he'd be gone. And it doesn't make sense for to me because he's a right shot guy. His point totals relative to what's available on the trade market are actually pretty good. Um, you know, even though he's not that guy, but he's built for playoff hockey. He's a character guy. He's going to fit in seamlessly in any room. And people around the league know what he is, even though he's better here than he's been at other stops. Or not better, but more valuable here than he's been at other stops. So how should the Canucks be handling these last few games heading into March 3rd with Luke Shen? Yeah, I'm still hopeful that they can get a second round pick. And if not at worst, hopefully net uh, net a third. I think it'd be, it'd be catastrophically disappointing if it's anything below a third. Given his market value, given his given the season that he's had, I don't think this is a case where we're necessarily like. I think to a certain extent you could say that we've been maybe a little bit overvaluing him, but I don't think by a lot. And to be totally honest, I think it's pretty similar to how teams around the league would look at a player of his experience, of his championship pedigree, of his character, of his toughness, hitting ability boxing out in front of the net, the the ability to stop a cycle, help out, help out on a penalty kill, the sort of just overall calming presence he is. I'm not too worried yet. I think when it comes to depth additions like Luke Shen, they typically happen closer to the deadline, right? I, I think ahead of the deadline, we've seen the bigger moves, right? Like we've seen Horvat, we've seen Tarasenko, we've seen Ryan O'Reilly now. 
teams aren't necessarily getting ahead of the curve to acquire a bottom pair defenseman or, or a bottom six forward. The, the only ones that have been a part of you know, that have moved in terms of bottom six forwards and, and bottom pair defensemen so far are the players that were part of those bigger deals for impact players, right? Like Mikola as a third pair defender for the Rangers goes as part of the Tarasenko deal. Nola Chari as a fourth line center goes as part of the Ryan O'Reilly deal, but you haven't seen like a Nick Bukestad, right? Would be the forward comparable probably for what Luke Shen is. It's not as if a Nick, Nick Bukestad has been dealt um, at the deadline yet. You haven't seen, you know, a Nick Holden dealt. So I just think it's a case where teams usually wait until closer to the deadline, closer to see exactly what all their options are. It kind of goes down to the wire sometimes for these depth uh, depth players. And so I'm not too worried about Shen quite yet. Yeah, you know, and I, I get the sense that that type of player is more valued right at the deadline within, you know, 24 hours of the deadline, 48 hours of the deadline that someone gets hurt. Um, someone needs a a guy to come in and, and play where you where you can go plug and play. And I think he'll be that guy. I think there's a lot more stories to be told between now and then. And and I think his market is going to go up. Yeah, Mott's the only player now, now, that, now that I think about it, who just recently went um to back to the Rangers for uh for a sequel there. But yeah, outside of that, you haven't really had depth players move. What do you make of that move? I, you know, like certainly he was a player that we may have overvalued here, but fit in well there. Yeah, I mean you you talk to any Rangers fan or you see their their reaction, they love Tyler Mott the way we love Tyler Mott in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Right. And so for for them to have that type of pickup, I mean, all they gave up was what, a seventh and um uh I'm trying to remember they give up a a fringe, I think Julian Gauthier, just another fringe, you know, bottom six piece. I think it was a great ad for the Rangers. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, again, a, a guy that can kill penalties. He can play on your fourth line. He can he can uh, skate and play with pace and do some things in the playoffs. So you know, a, a good ad there, and someone certainly we're uh, familiar with here, and and are not surprised when he can bring those intangible pieces. And like I said, I think Shen on the back end can do a lot of those things as well. And I think there is going to be some value there. Like I said, I. I you know, from the Canucks standpoint, hopefully the market heats up and they can they can pick up a late second, right? Because he, an early third, like what what does that mean? That means a team that missed the playoffs anyway. They're not looking for him, so it's not like they they need to get a second for him. I think in terms of maximizing this, because a third round pick they get is going to be in and around you know the the eighty spot, right? But um, who knows if they can get to that between now and then? But J T. Miller, so his name has come up where teams have reached out wanting to trade for him. Now, it surprises me. For, and and not because of what we do or don't think of the player, but just the contract, right? I mean, there's no way around that. Do I think JT Miller is going to be a successful player in the playoffs? Of course I do, right? Uh, he plays that type of game. I think he'll be hyper-motivated. Um, but how would a trade involving JT Miller look at this stage? Because if somebody's reaching out, does that mean the Canucks still have to offer a sweetener to somebody taking on those con- that contract? Well, the X factor here, from my perspective, is are teams calling and willing to take the whole deal, or are they looking for something where the Canucks retain a little bit, right? Well, because God, Miller, like, right, it, it, at, what are, what are we doing here to retain a seven year contract? Well, here's the thing, right? Because look, Miller at eight million, right? Who is going to be right around twenty nine years old, and it kicks in next season. That's 
probably a little bit too rich, even for a contending team that's looking to win now. But from a contender's perspective, you go, okay, how about JT Miller at $7 million instead? All of a sudden, that could be a lot more palatable. All of a sudden, that could be a lot more Oh, you mean like the Canucks did with Oliver Ekman Larson? Exactly. Right? Like that's, like, that's the sort of thing where it's like, maybe you retain just a little bit enough, enough to where the contract could be palatable for a contender. And then, you know, that's perhaps the, the sort of scenario where you might be able to draw a decent amount of interest. It's interesting also for me because a big part of it is going to come down to, well, what's the Canucks' willingness, right? Because the report Friedman had was these teams were calling and sort of trying to get an indication of where the Canucks stand in all of this. And I don't know how they feel about Miller right now and, and his long-term future because on the one hand, teams and general managers are often very, very slow to admit their mistakes. You think about even, for example, like the classic example for Canucks fans is with Erica Branson, right? The Canucks had screwed that that initial trade up and then instead of trading him, they re-signed him, right? <laughs> Initially, they were able to sort of sort of move him but it was after the after the, they had like given him a second shot with the extension as well right after he'd been a disaster so in this case though you don't have the luxury of waiting because once that trade protection kicks in you lose control of this uh, of this situation and it's interesting because with Rutherford one of the things that st- stood out to me when I when he first got hired and I was looking at his track record in Pittsburgh was that he does have a history of rectifying his mistakes quickly and not being afraid to admit that, okay, we screwed up. I'm going to take the L here, right? You think about like, you think about his first coaching hire in Pittsburgh was Mike Johnston, just a little bit over a year after he handpicked his guy, right? This isn't like it was with Boudreaux where he sort of inherited Boudreaux. Rutherford handpicked Mike Johnston, and it was one early playoff sort of first round exit, I believe, and then a, a slow start to the season after that, and he was gone, and Mike Sullivan is hired. And guess what? That was the difference maker in terms of them winning those back-to-back championships. One of his first splashy acquisitions was David Perron. I think he gave up a first round pick from Perron was a poor fit, and it was only 12 months later that Rutherford flipped Perron for Carl Hagelin. And obviously Hagelin became part of that vaunted HBK line, which was the X factor for the Penguins' uh, cop run. You saw it with, uh, they picked the pretty much the perfect time to sort of trade Kessel away before that contract became a bit, uh, a, bit of, um, uh, a bit of a burden. Now that wasn't rectifying a mistake. That was different. It was more selling him at a point where it's like we secured maximum value out of him, he was he's a great player, and we're now entering the stage where doesn't get along great with Malkin. He's probably peaked, and we need to change up our mix. Chose the right time to sell high on him as opposed to lingering and waiting for him to become a depreciating asset. Even when Rutherford took on Good Branson from Vancouver, he didn't fit there, and Rutherford was pr- pretty quick to move on from Good Branson, Good Branson, and ship him out to Anaheim before that contract became immovable. Like that's that's an interesting track record, and you hope that that philosophy can guide this club's decision making. Because with JT Miller, it's also important to clarify: like 
I know he gets criticized a lot in this market. I know we've been critical of him and his performance, especially relative to the contract that he signed. But the crux of the issue isn't that he's the worst player in the league, that, oh my God, what a terrible player. That's never been the problem. The problem has been he's a good player, but he's probably overpaid and he's on the downward slope of his career at a point where the Canucks aren't um, aren't ready to contend. It's it's the sort of case where it's the right player at the wrong time. It's more about the timing than it is about the player. So with that contact, with that pretext in mind, there's nothing this management group can do to inspire confidence in the fan base again as much as successfully moving uh, on from him and and doing it in a world where you're you're not taking a, a terrible contract back because they can somehow execute this it would do it would do it would do wonders in sort of reshaping their their cap situation and uh, clearing the books giving them flexibility it would just be such a big win long term yeah for sure but it also does you know it's not just admitting a mistake it's also admitting a rebuild right like we talk about signature moves this club can make that will determine what this is JT Miller is supposed to be a cornerstone player for this organization for years to come, especially in the absence of Bo Horvat, right? Like we understand why they will never, while they'll never say it, they chose between the two because the contracts demanded that. So when they signed JT Miller, right? And and even Jim has admitted publicly, we knew we couldn't lose both of them. JT Miller was meant to be a cornerstone player. He's now the 2C, right? Which if you think you want to retool, you need those pieces, right? Like you don't just go find a 2C and a 3C and a retool. That's a rebuild. So if they all of a sudden took the plunge, you know, and I talked about Demko as being a signature move because of just how good and efficient his contract is, that it fits with a retool, that that would be an admission of a rebuild. I kind of think JT Miller a trade at this stage, even though the contract is going to be an albatross. We know that. I don't know if they're at the point yet where they view it a mistake. Remember Rutherford's comments when he was asked about the contract. Oh, this contract's not going to hurt us. It's going to be just fine. The cap is going to keep going up. But then at the same time said that they couldn't deal with Bo because of, because of the cap. So I think for me, if they make that trade, whereas a Besser trade is a nibble around the edges move, both in terms of who he is as a player and the amount of term left on his deal. Uh, you know, Garland and these other guys, they're nibble around the edges moves. JT Miller is a signature massive move on a player I don't think they've given up on yet. For sure. I think ultimately, though, with the cap space that you free up, that that gives you a lot of tools to be able to, whenever you're ready to sort of accelerate again, it gives you a lot of options, right? Because in today's NHL, that flexibility is equally... Like, we've seen it, right? With this team, how many times has Rutherford cited... The lack of uh, cap flexibility to be in in terms of uh, in terms of the things that they want to accomplish and not being able to do it. So it isn't necessarily a case where yeah, I mean, losing JT Miller, are you a worse team because of it? Absolutely. But in two three years, let's say where you know maybe you spend another year or two at the absolute bottom, and then after that you're looking at okay, let's start rebuilding the blue line. Let's start taking a step forward. We don't want to be in the basement forever. You're going to have all that money to work with. I don't but think it's again, hard again, to replace harm. that value when you have just, that cap space. But just look at the math you just outlined, and it's a rebuild. Two or three years at the bottom, 
Then you start building the back end, right? Like now we're looking at what's quickly a four and five year project. Sure. You and you and I have the debate on this all the time that I'm going to grade them on what their stated goals are. You're going to grade them on what you think their goals and course of action should be. Um, so, so that's certainly going to be a constant theme for us. But for me, I just think that that move moving on from JT Miller, I'm not telling you it's the wrong move, but I'm just telling you what it signals. Like, am I wrong in that? You can't tweak this by moving JT Miller. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I haven't thought about it too much from the lens of rebuild versus retool. The only lens I've thought about it through is it's, it's the, the right thing to do. Best, it's the right yeah, thing to do. For sure. Right? So like I'm, that's I'm, that's all I've really thought about it from. I'm, you know, I haven't thought about like what does it mean for the label? What does it mean big picture in terms of what they're trying to accomplish? Well, at some point you hope their goals align. Like you you hope their moves align with their goals, what their stated messaging is. That's the problem the organization's had for so long, right? Like the moves never aligned with what they said they wanted to do. You know, and, and it starts with Louis Erickson and goes from there. So I, I just think that that I want to just see them attempt to deliver what they say they're going to deliver, uh, rightly or wrongly. So that that's kind of where I'm I'm at. I don't want to see a hodgepodge of moves. I want to see a coherent strategy. And I'm not sure moving on from JT Miller today necessarily does that in terms of their two to three year timeline. But it certainly well, does open up cap space, which is critical. I, I well, I don't, like I've, I've thought about it a bit now. Like I don't care if they're rebuilding or retooling. Like that's still. That's still in their in their best interest because look at the way that he's played this season, right? He's put up a lot of points, and again, it's not as if he's you know a da- disastrous sort of uh, contract, but it could end up looking like that very soon, at the very least. But they had the to have known least, that when they signed it. It hasn't even kicked in yet, Arm. Like they well, had to I'll, have known that and considered that. No, well, I- I'm sure that they saw some risk at the back end. I don't think they ever foresaw. His uh, his play falling off. I, I you know they definitely planned on him being a centerman, and they figured that he was going to be successful there. And I'll also say I think there are there definitely would have been another team that if Miller had been a free agent at the end of last season on the back of his ninety nine point season, somebody would have signed him to the contract the Canucks did. One hundred percent. There's zero doubt in uh, in my mind. But look, you're seeing his performance this season. You're seeing that you know. You're not all, you're not 100 confident in whether he can be the best version of himself at uh, at center, and so at the end of the day, he's just an inefficient contract. I'm not saying it's one of the worst deals in the league, but he's already going to be inefficient as of next season. So I don't care whether you're rebuilding, I don't care whether you're retooling. If your timeline is to fix things in two or three years, even well, when you're in two or three years and Miller's 31 or 32 at eight million, you'd still rather not have that deal and have that cap space go toward some other part of the roster, rebuilding the blue line, maybe a younger player. You'd rather have have that flexibility to be able to, in the offseason, um, when when you you have scenarios where, you know, whether it's a Kevin Fiala or whether it's a Devon Taves or Pavel Buchnevich, when other teams have cap crunches and they have to let a good player go, who's going to make, you know, five to seven million dollars, for example, you want to be able to have the flexibility to bid on that. So regardless of whether it's a retool or rebuild, I still believe it's in their best interest to try and trade that contract. Uh, I would agree with you. I I can't argue with it uh, philosophically. If you take out the context of, of state of goal, it, it only makes sense. We'll see if it gets there. I'd be shocked 
at this point if he got moved to the deadline. But uh, we'll see where it goes. Hey, uh, before we go, we, I wanted to talk about this earlier, but the Matt Barzal injury. Yeah. So looks like he's not coming back anytime soon here. Uh, you know, that's obviously going to be a huge thing, not necessarily for Team Tank, but in terms of when that draft pick, that first round draft pick gets handed to the Canucks. Absolutely. Barzell week to week. They had just gotten embarrassed by uh, the Bruins in, in that game. They're also missing Pajot, Wallstrom, and Josh Bailey. So they're really thin offensively right now. The other thing that stands out because I've just been interested in watching the Isles a lot recently because of what um, what that draft pick means to the Canucks and trying to see how Hor- Horvat fits in. The Islanders' transition game is basically key through Matt Barzell, especially for that line, because that blue line cannot move the puck well. It's not much better than Vancouver's when it comes to breaking it out. That, that blue line is better defensively. They are better at protecting the slot, for sure, but it's not a mobile group that, you know, for example, you look at Alex Alexander Romanov. He was their big splashy acquisition, treated a first-round pick for him um, at the draft from Montreal. He hasn't been the answer, in my opinion, in terms of really overhauling that uh, that top four. So because of that, Barzell is the guy that has to come so deep in the defensive zone and carry the puck up, use his skating, make so many plays. He's the engine of uh, of their top six. So for them to lose him on a week-to-week basis... That's that's a massive, massive blow for them. Could have a trickle-down effect on Horvat because Barzell as a playmaker was able to just feed Horvat a lot. And now you're in a situation where you're going to have to ask Horvat to kind of drive the bus for his own line. And we know that he isn't the sort of transition driver that Barzell necessarily is. And now he doesn't have a playmaker playmaker to feed him. That puts a lot more pressure on him. The other aspect too is that power play since Horvat had uh, had arrived was top four in uh, in the NHL in 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 their goals for rate. After you know before Horvat had come, they were like 29th or 30th in the league in that respect. So immediately Horvat comes in, the power play is booming. Now you lose Barzell, who makes so many plays from the half wall that kills them there as well. And they've already got the 12th worst record right now by points percentage because they've kind of slipped a little bit and fell into a lull. I'm at the point now where you're you you've got all these injuries beyond Barzell as well. Your next five games before the deadline are all against playoff teams. They're gonna find out here within the next few few games whether they're gonna be deadline sellers or not. Because they've got Semyon Varlamov, they they've got Scott Mayfield as pending UFAs. If they don't pick up some wins within the within the next few days they may become trade deadline sellers and that could all of a sudden put the Canucks' first round pick from the Islanders in a spot where you're going, well, either they just miss and they're going to be picking 13th or 14th or 15th and the Canucks will get a mid first round pick this year. Or if they do finish bottom 12, then you may be looking at at an unprotected first round pick for next year, which either scenario to me is a tantalizing uh, possibility. Yeah, hard to argue. And with that, if they become sellers, could Bo Horvat be a part of that? No, I'd be surprised. I would be After too. That contract they signed, I don't think so. That that doesn't strike me as a Lou thing to do. Uh, it doesn't. No, you're right. Um, but I, you know, certainly when they acquired him, that was part of the conversation. Now he hadn't been signed yet. I think that conversation went around the possibility of them not getting a deal done for him, and then he could still be a chip. But I think everybody also understood that they don't make that trade without an understanding of what the contract would look like. 
Um, that is it for us for today. Uh, we are going to do a live room this week, Drancer and I. Now, we're still debating as to whether or not it'll be Tuesday or Thursday, but it will be after one of the games this week. So we'll post on that quick. So uh, be uh, be aware, be, to stay tuned. And, and hopefully we know the live rooms have, have had a lot of success uh, in the last um, season. If you go back to the midway point of last season that we've been doing them. So those are a lot of fun. So Drancer and I will do one this month and it will be after one of the two games this week on the road. If you're looking for other podcast options, Craig Custance and Sean Gentili will welcome Charlie Lindgren from the Washington Capitals on the Athletic Hockey Show USA. As for us, you can follow the VanCast on your favorite podcast platform, leave a rating and a review, and you can get a new subscription to The Athletic for just $2 per month for 12 months when you visit theathletic.com slash VanCast. You going on this trip? Nashville's good to you, buddy. I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I'll have it at least for the draft, Nashville. So, all right. Uh, how'd you do on your Super Bowl predictions? Not great. I was hoping the Eagles would win, so that uh, that that kind of sucked. I'm, I'm not gonna lie. I uh, they, they didn't have audio on, so a lot of times when there would be flag thrown uh, flags thrown, I'd be like, "Oh, what happened here?" So it's a. Uh, I don't know. It's a bit of a forward experience. You were at a Canuck practice during Super Bowl, right? No. Oh, where were you? I was uh, I was at um, at a uh, at an event with uh, one of my friends at uh, Hotel Belmont, a Super Bowl event with no volume. Yeah, I don't know. They did. Uh, they had it on a projector, and they didn't have the the commentary on. Ah, they had, okay. They had it uh, on, or like, sorry, they did have the audio on, but like people were just talking the whole time, so I could like barely make it out. So it was a bit of an odd experience trying to keep up there, but it was an like what a game. Right, and I, I thought the I thought the Eagles at, at around halftime. I was like, especially with Mahomes going off with uh, with his ankle not looking great. I was like, we got this in the bag. Eagles are gonna win. Let's go. And then they uh, they unfortunately choked. Yeah, I, w- I went back and forth on my prediction until the day before I tweeted it, and I nailed my final prediction, um, which was that even though I thought Philly was better everywhere but quarterback and tight end, Phil, uh, the the. Kansas City would keep it close and Mahomes would take over and that they would win by three. And in the end, that's what happened. Uh, so I don't often get these right, but this time I did. So it's funny. I go, I go through this all the time with Super Bowls. Like I start one way, I convince myself the complete opposite over the course of the week and then go back to my original prediction. And that's, you know, uh, generally uh, generally the way it goes. But look, uh, that was fun. And now the offseason, this is hard for me. Like, So we can't even tag with me mocking you for your lack of football knowledge. But hey, um, let's uh, let's do this again next week. Today is Monday. Next week we're going to go Tuesday because I think Monday is a game day. So our next regular van cast with Harm and I will be on Tuesday. So make sure you catch that. Lots of fun talking about this team as always. We'll talk soon, my friend, as we inch closer to the trade deadline.